Mercy Me is coming to Pittsburgh. The Together Again tour with Mercy Me, Crowder, and special guest Andrew Ripp. Thursday, October 5th. Bring your family and friends to the PPG Paints Arena in Pittsburgh for Mercy Me, Crowder, and Andrew Ripp live in concert. Three multiple award-winning artists on one stage for one night. Let your spirit soar, your heart sing, and your faith ignite. Mark your calendars for Thursday, October 5th. Get your tickets now at mercyme.org. I've never had as many conversations with kids who feel as much pressure as they do today. Yeah. I mean, and really, before the pandemic, it was already considered a childhood epidemic in America. And we were looking at one in four kids dealing with anxiety with girls twice as likely. Now, we're looking at one in three. and welcome to the Christy Wright Show. I'm so excited because today we are talking about three ways to stop worrying. And then I got to sit down with my new friend and author and counselor, Sissy Goff. And y'all, she is brilliant. And she has amazing advice for me and you on how to stop worrying, reduce anxiety, and raise great kids. But first, let's talk about how we can stop worrying. Now, I'll tell you, I've noticed something about my kids. As their personality is coming out and you learn their strengths and their weaknesses and their tics and their quirks, I have noticed something about my oldest son, Carter. Now, Carter is my very patient, level-headed, steady, cautious, rule follower child. He's an oldest child. He is a tiny replica of my husband. So I feel like I know Carter pretty well because he's just a tiny version of my husband. Well, I have noticed that Carter not only can get mad, like anyone can, I've noticed what happens when he gets mad. There are a few signature signs that things are not going well in his little mind or body and things are escalating. Now, if you have multiple kids, you start to notice this with your kids, right? Like you start to notice the warning signs early on. This isn't gonna be good. We're about to have a breakdown. This is, this is fun laughter. It's about to turn into crying. Like you're always trying to intersect, intercept before things go south. Well, let me tell you what my son Carter does. First of all, when you can tell like he and his brother are playing and Conley, his younger brother, has aggravated him just a little too far. That joke wasn't funny. He pushed too hard in wrestling. Whatever it was has set Carter off and it went from fun to mad. And you can tell because Carter's eyes get real wide, like dramatically wide. And he does this weird underbite thing. He's like, when the underbite comes out, I know it's not going to be good. He then begins to do this weird grunting things like, See, we're seeing signs. He then takes whatever's in his hands or within arm's reach, and he raises it dramatically over his head, puts it out like a javelin, and begins to charge his brother, right? It doesn't matter if it's a stuffed animal or a paintbrush or building blocks. He's taking it, he's shoving it at his brother, and charging him with this new weapon he has just created. Here's the thing, though. Through this whole series of events that I watch unfold with my son Carter when he has been pushed past his limit by his younger brother, I see this whole thing unfold, but way early in the process, I know it's gonna go bad. I can tell when the underbite comes out, things are going south. I know these early warning signs and it helps me try to stop things before it gets really bad. And always, when I see the underbite, I go, Carter, stop. 
Carter, he didn't even do anything. He hadn't even lifted the animal up yet. But I'm like, I know where this is going. I know you, and I'm just gonna stop it before it gets bad. The funny thing is, when we start to worry, we have a few signature signs as well. Our bodies and our minds tell us things are getting bad. Our heart starts to race. You know that feeling, don't you? You're short of breath and you're not sure why. You're just sitting at your desk or you're at home or you're in your car and your heart is racing and you find yourself having shallow breathing. You're getting nervous. Your palms might start to sweat. Your thoughts start to race faster and faster and faster. There's a lot of what if thoughts. What if, what if this, what about this? I gotta do this. It starts to feel frantic. All of these signs are early warning signs that you are starting to worry and feel anxious. And while there are certain, certainly plenty of things in our circumstances that we can't control, we can help reduce our worry by doing three specific things. And I wanna give you these three things you can do to stop your spiraling thoughts and stop worrying. This is like me intersecting Carter going, stop, let's stop this before it begins. Let's cut it off before things get bad. And so I wanna give you three things that you can do to stop your spiraling thoughts and reduce your worry. The first thing that you can do, this is super predictable, super practical, but it works. The first thing you can do to stop worrying is to pray. Now, that sounds like a good Bible school answer, right? Like this is a nice Sunday school answer. It sounds like the right thing to do as a Christian, but let's unpack practically why this works. Well, first of all, prayer and worrying are not the same thing, right? Let's talk about why they're not the same thing. When you're worrying, you're typically focusing on what's wrong. You're typically having worst case scenarios. You're very focused on yourself and your circumstances, right? When you focus on yourself and your circumstances and things you can't control or what if worst case scenarios, that's where worry comes from. So when we camp there, we're not experiencing peace or faithfulness, or being confident, we are worrying because our focus is on ourselves and what we can or can't control. Well, prayer is completely opposite. When you pray, your focus is on God. Your focus is on what He can control, which, spoiler alert, is everything. When you pray, you're releasing control. You're not trying to control and manipulate all the details. You're actually releasing control. You're acknowledging that your God that loves you and knows everything and can do anything is in control and he can handle this thing. So the very first simple thing that you can do to stop worrying is to pray. Instead of stewing and worrying and trying to control it and manipulating and Googling more situations or Googling more uh, solutions and trying to always be cruise director of every detail of your life and control everything as the micromanager that you and I can tend to be, switch your focus, switch your actions, submit yourself to God and pray. Have a posture of submission and say, God, I am worrying and I know that you've got this. God, I give this situation to you. I don't know what's going on and I'm scared, but you can handle it. I can't handle it, but you can. Prayer and worry are not the same thing. When you pray, your focus is on God and what he can do. And that will immediately help you reduce your worry. 
Now, the second practical thing that you can do when you wanna reduce your worry is to believe the best. We've talked about this before, but typically, in the absence of information, we tend to assume the worst. That's the worst case scenarios, it's doomsday, our heart's racing, our palms are sweating, we're nervous as can be, we're always focused on what if this happens, and it's always such a bad outcome, right? Well, we can put all that energy into believing a good outcome. Both are hypotheticals. Neither have come true. We're, we're using our imagination either way. I, I love the quote, worry is a misuse of the imagination. We can use our imagination to believe a great outcome and believe in that. Let me give you an example. This was years ago, but one day I was at the YMCA and I was running on the treadmill. I was trying to have a little me time. My mom was watching Carter at the time. This was when he was a baby. My mom was watching Carter and I was on the treadmill having some time away. Now, being a new mom of a young baby, this was my first baby, I was learning how to do this. I was learning how to be away and not worry, which is really hard. And I remember being on the treadmill, and y'all, I don't know what got this thought in my mind, but a tiny seed of a thought started. I don't think the window in his room is locked. The window room in his room is not locked. It's definitely not locked. He's been messing with it lately. I think there's a stool in his room. He could pull that stool to the window. He could definitely open the window. He's gonna open, there's not a screen on that window. I bet she's, what if she's in the bathroom? And he's in his room and he takes the stool and he puts it over the window and he opens up the window and he falls out the window and he falls from the second story. And my son, my son dies by falling out the window because he's, I've got to go home. I've got to turn off the treadmill. I've got to go home. And I left the treadmill and went home that day to check on my son. I had texted my mom and she didn't respond. Oh, because for sure she's outside finding my son where he's fallen out the window. Not because she was playing with him and look, not looking at her phone. Worry can make you believe in a completely alternate reality that's not even remotely based in truth or facts or what's really going on. That's why in the absence of information, you can choose to believe the best. I could have been on the treadmill and thought, I bet she's got him in the playroom. They're probably not even in his room anyway. I bet she's with him 24-7 because that's what she does every time she's with him. She never takes her eyes off of him. I bet they're fine. She's not responding because they're having so much fun or they're outside or they're on a walk. Either way, you get to choose. You can assume the worst and worry yourself sick. And there are no limits on what you can worry about. I mean, we got, we got a million things you can worry about. Really no limits there. Or you can believe the best. You can give someone the benefit of the doubt. Someone doesn't respond to your text. You think, I think they're probably busy. Not, they don't like me, what did I do? You're racking your brain, did I, was I mean to him? Did I do something wrong? In any circumstance, whether it's someone not responding to your text or your child is being watched by someone else, you can assume the worst and worst case scenarios and worry yourself sick or you can believe the best. When you believe the best and assume a good outcome and give people the benefit of the doubt, then you reduce your worry. So the first simple way to reduce your worry is to pray. The second one is believe the best. The third thing you can do is focus on what you're grateful for. And I know I talk about gratitude a lot, but y'all, it has such a practical application in your life. When you feel your heart racing and you feel your thoughts spiraling and you are running off the rails and you're trying to control them, one of the most simple practices is to train your mind to think about what is good, what is right, what you're grateful for. 
When you refocus your mind to those things, those things become bigger to you. Because whatever you focus on increases. If you worry and focus on those bad things, it's like you're fanning the flame of the worry. It's gonna get bigger and bigger and larger than life to you. You're gonna, you're gonna have full-blown anxiety attack by the end of it if you give so much attention to that thing you're worrying about. But the opposite is also true. If you focus on what you're grateful for, what is good, what is right, what is awesome, what is okay, what is perfect, what is great about your situation, those things get bigger and bigger and bigger, and those things become larger than life to you. They will completely consume and swallow up your worries when you focus your attention to what you're grateful for. When I was on the treadmill that day, I could have focused on how grateful I am that I have a mom that'll take care of my son. I'm so grateful I have help that I could sneak away and get in this run on the treadmill today. I'm so grateful for that. Gratitude brings a smile to your face. Gratitude lets your shoulders relax. Gratitude invites peace. Gratitude gives you perspective. Gratitude reduces your worry. I know it's not a perfect formula, and it doesn't mean that you're not still gonna have those moments where thoughts creep in or, or something sends your mind off the rails or something makes you worry when you weren't planning to, didn't want to, didn't mean to. But these three practical, simple things that you can do to pray, believe the best, and focus on what you're grateful for will help you have more control than you think and reduce your worry. All right, y'all, I'm so excited about this conversation. I get to sit down with my new friend and counselor at Daystar Counseling and author of Raising Worry-Free Girls, Sissy Goff. Sissy, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I've got a couple of your resources here, Braver, Stronger, Smarter, which you said is a curriculum. It's a workbook for elementary-age girls. Okay, elementary-age girls. And then we have this book, Raising Worry-Free Girls. You have a new book that just recently came out. Tell us about that. Yes, it's for adolescents, and it's called Brave. And pre-pandemic, the age group I was most concerned about were elementary-age kids. The average age of onset had been eight, and it was dropping to six. Wow. And now in the midst of the pandemic, I'm— most concerned about adolescence, which is why the Brave book came out. Gotcha. So what, what's interesting is there's obviously a theme yes. to your work. I'm like, that's <laughs> yes. what I wanted to bring. Like, let's start here. Yes. There's a theme to your work. And you're talking about raising worry-free girls. As soon as I saw this title, I mean, my daughter's one and a half. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I need to read this. Yes. I need to know. Yes. And so I just, I want to, I want to unpack this. Let's just start with why did you want to tackle this issue and help us understand why is it an issue? How much is this an issue in our world with our kids, especially young girls, with anxiety, fear, worry, all of that? Help us understand what what we're looking at here. It's a huge issue. And really, before the pandemic, it was already considered a childhood epidemic in America. And we were looking at one in four kids dealing with anxiety with girls twice as likely. Wow. Now, we're looking at one in three. And so it's just so prevalent among kids. And in fact, As I sit down with families in my office, I feel like if an oldest child is a girl, she's pretty much going to have some degree of anxiety today. It's just that rampant. Yeah. Okay, so I can guess some of the factors. Um, Social media comparison, the standards of, like, performance that are just higher and higher with every generation— I'm just making that up on the fly, but help me understand why is it so bad right now? You're exactly right. All of those things, technology, social media for sure for kids who are on it, and then technology in general. I mean, if you think about when we're looking at a device, our brains are being bombarded with images and they move into kind of this agitated state that mimics anxiety. And so, and their brains aren't developed, so they can't calm themselves back down yet. So that's a part of it. And then I have never 
never had as many conversations with kids who feel as much pressure as mm. they do today. Yeah. I mean, they feel like they have to succeed academically, athletically, in every avenue of their life that even exists. And then I would say there's a parental component yeah. to it, too. Yeah. And genetically— That's what I was going to ask, that yes, pressure even, where totally, that comes from. Yes. So genetically, if you as a parent have anxiety, which, you know, today I think most grown-ups have some degree, but your kids are seven times more likely to deal with it statistically. Wow. And then I think there are even some parenting styles that contribute to it sometimes sure. without ever intending to. Sure. Okay. What, what are they? Okay, go on. So, go on. Because so, I'm like, I'm yes, listening. Yes. So, okay. So when I wrote these books, because I was writing three on anxiety, I read 23 books on anxiety, which wow. is a whole lot of books about anything. And then obviously have been counseling almost 30 years. And so what the research says is that the two most common parenting strategies for anxiety are escape and avoidance. Mm. So a child comes into a setting that makes them afraid. And the parents, of course, as a, as a parent, you love your child. You want to rescue them. You want to pull them out. But in the books, the definition I came up with for anxiety is that anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. Wow. And I like so that. if I rescue them, I'm saying, yep. That problem is so big. Exactly. It's too big. You're too small. You can't do it. Instead of giving them tools to move into it gradually right. where they feel like they're capable. Right. Okay. That's that's so interesting. So one of the things that you talk about in your book, and I, I really want to know from your expert perspective, talk to me about these terms, anxiety, worry, fear, mm-hmm. nervous. Like, help me understand, because I kind of use them interchangeably. Like, is anxiety just like a big fear? Like, help me understand from a clinical, from a from an expert perspective, a science perspective, what do these terms mean, really? That's a great question, because we do. I think culturally now we use them sure. interchangeably. So fear is really elicited by something we're afraid of. You know, spiders or snakes or whatever, we're afraid when we're around that or we're about to be. Worry, we all worry. We have worries that come and go. And for people who are anxious, what that is, you know, we all have thousands of intrusive thoughts per day. So if I'm anxious, I have an intrusive thought like maybe something bad's going to happen to my child, and then I can't get it out. It oh, gets your stuck. mind is off the rails. Exactly. I always been there. Yes. <laughs> so with kids, I'll always say it's like the one loop roller coaster at the fair. You know, it comes in and they just can't get it out and get stuck and goes around and around and around. So yeah. that would be how I would characterize anxiety specifically. Okay, so I'm curious. Going back to something you said a second ago, I have two boys and a girl. Yes, my boys are older, and then my daughter's my youngest. Um, and I, and I'm I'm interested in this even from a, an adult perspective between men and women. So I'm I'm curious your thoughts on this. I read research years ago, um, and this was I think in Bringing Up Boys by James Dodson, mm-hmm, like old mm-hmm. old research. But it was talking about how um, little boys and little girls are wired differently, and little yes. um, girls tend to be more risk averse. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a, a study that showed that little girls break sooner when riding a bicycle than little mm. boys do. They tend That's to so interesting. They tend to attribute um, mistakes to themselves versus outside factors. Little boys yes. are like oh, it must have been a rock in the road. Could have been been me, for sure. (laughs) Little boys are slower to learn from calamities. Mm. Uh, Little girls never want to make the same mistake twice. So you see some of these Mm. things, and I've been using this research for years, when you even forecast in the future and think of what are the implications as grown men and women yes, and how uh, men can have a tendency to be overly confident when they even applying for jobs they have um, half the qualifications for where women tend to be a little bit more reserved. Yes. So so I'm curious when you when you put this lens on it of worry, mm-hmm. okay, worry, fear, cautiousness, all all the mm-hmm. things that play into this. 
why, why are little girls more worried? Why are little girls more anxious? Why are your middle schoolers, why are your high schoolers experiencing this at a greater rate? Because you even say in your book, little girls uh, experience this more, but little boys are treated more. Yes. And so talk to me about the differences, even in the gender, because I think this is interesting. Well, I love what you're talking about. That's fascinating. I haven't read that, those studies. But yes, I mean, for girls, I think part of it is because I talk about how kids are either kind of exploders or they're imploders when okay. they deal with anxiety. And I think boys more often explode. So we see it as preach, anger and rage. Preach. The sure do. The yes, sure do. All those things. And so I think as a parent, you're like, something's off. We've right. got to go see somebody. Whereas girls so often are imploding. And girls who are anxious are often perfectionistic, too. And so they really kind of fly under the radar. I mean, they are at parent-teacher conferences. Teachers are saying, your daughter is delightful. I wish every student was like her. Now, sometimes the rails will come off still at home because she feels safest at home. But by and large, a lot of anxiety-driven behavior makes them model kids. Yes. So we don't see and think, I need to take them in to see somebody. So I think that's a huge part of why we miss it sometimes. But I do think, I read an article recently about how boys have have never cared less about academics and pushing themselves. Mm. It was by Leonard Sachs, who's a great psychologist, and that girls have never cared more. And that's what I'm seeing. I mean, I have to like, I have so many girls who are not okay with 100s. They want 104s. You know, there's just this sense of pushing themselves. But I'm going to throw out one more thing. Okay. And I feel like I always want to say this really graciously to anyone who's a mom. <laughs> I'm ready, I'm ready. But I think after all these years of counseling that every parent has one child in their family that they're the hardest on. Mm. And it's either the child who's most like you or it's your oldest child of your same gender. And so I often see moms who are harder on girls than they are on boys. And I think it's that same thing you said. We're harder on ourselves, and girls feel like an extension of us. And so we push them. And so I think that's part of why girls are leading the statistics, too. I'm sure it's very unintentional for any moms out there. No, that's fascinating to know because even as you were talking, my next questions that were popping in my mind, because this is so fascinating, it's kind of twofold, so maybe you could help us with this. How do we as parents— identify anxiety in our kids, boys mm-hmm. or girls? What mm-hmm. are some of the warning signs there that we can go, okay, this this isn't healthy. They're getting right. 104s and imploding, and we, we need to know that. Yes. So what are the warning signs? Also, at the same time, and I think these are maybe connected, how can we rein in our own crazy? Like, mm-hmm. how can we not just not put pressure on our kids, but— you know, I, this is a silly example because Mary Grace is one and a half, but she right. she does what I do, right? Yes, like they model us, but they do through life. She'll, she'll come in my bathroom and she'll grab my hairbrush and go like this, like wave it on her hair because she sees that mommy brushes her hair. Yeah. So I just think of fast forwarding. If mommy is talking about how I look in a dress or, oh, this makes me look, you know, you think about what they pick up from us, mm-hmm. our own um, sense of self, our own sense of confidence, self-esteem, um, those type of things. I remember hearing um, Meg Meeker say one time, the best way to teach a daughter how to enjoy life is to let her see her mother do the same. Mm, and so then that, that message of of the example we set, which we know in our heads, mm-hmm. and we still somehow uh, miss how that, that effect on our kids. So our own anxiety, our own worry, how we handle situations in front of our kids who are always watching. How do we mm-hmm. how do we identify it in them mm-hmm. and how do we rein it in ourselves mm-hmm. to not make the problem worse? Mm-hmm. Just a small question. Yeah, just, yeah exactly. <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so first question, recognize it in them. I would watch for that exploding or imploding. Okay. And with exploding, I mean it's it's so interesting to sit with parents of young kids because that's what they'll describe, boys and girls. Because I think 
you know, they don't yet have words to say, when you change my schedule at the last moment, it makes me anxious. You know, right, they right. don't have those coping skills, the language. And so anger is always a secondary emotion. Okay. So there's something else underneath the anger. So that's where we want to look at patterns. Is it unpredictability? Is it change at the last minute? Is it transitions? Is that when your child is exploding? Because if so, it likely is going to be related to anxiety. So we want to watch for that. We want to watch for kids who are putting undue amounts of pressure on themselves. They need to study 40 minutes for a test, and they're studying for three hours, you know, that kind of thing. Kids who doubt themselves a lot. Another way that I feel like I really recognize it with kids because of that one-loop roller coaster at the fair is they'll ask endless questions. Mm -hmm. So the child who says, what time are you going out? When are you going to be home? Wait, who's going to be with me? Wait, when are, what, oh, what are yeah. we doing? Or the night before when they're falling asleep, they're saying, tell me the whole schedule for tomorrow. Yeah. And then they make you go back and tell it again. Yeah. And research says we should never answer more than five questions about the same topic because mm. it's not helpful, Wow, which is interesting. So I think I will, something like that— I will like point that, that out to my children there tonight. There you go. I will start tonight. <laughs> there you go. So I think we want to watch them getting fixated on something like yeah. that and asking repetitive okay. questions. And then I would say for a parent, yes, the best thing you can do for your kids is manage your own anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so if that means you need to go talk to somebody yourself, whatever you need to do, because anxious parents, even statistics say, use more um, kind of catastrophic language. Like, that's the worst thing I've ever oh, wow. heard. Yep. You know, and we don't yep. know it. Right. And so I think being aware of what gets triggered in you. That's and good. really, I mean, when I wrote those books, I think the tools that work, so the primary tools I would say that work with kids also work in grownups. So mm -hmm. doing some research and figuring out some things you can do to help your kids and for them to watch you do it yourself is so yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to get into what some of those things are because okay. I know um, I'm curious and I'm sure everybody watching and listening is curious too. Like, what are some, we've identified it, what are some things we could do? But before we do, I had another question I was thinking of as you were talking, and this may be just transparently my season of life because I've got little kids. Yes. I feel like in my season with little kids, mm -hmm. though I can I can forecast in the future and imagine it's just the exact same, you know, when they're teenagers, just a different way. Right it feels like there's a lot of chaos. Mm. Now, we have dinner around the dinner table. We have both parents in the home. We have schedule and structure to our lives. Mm -hmm. But because we have three kids, age six and under, it's just a lot of—it's mm -hmm. a lot of loud. It's mm -hmm. a lot of chaos. It feels like they are all jockeying for position. They're all trying—mom, pay attention to me. They're always kind of competing. And and we give them a lot of individual attention. We, I mean, we, I feel like we do a lot of things right— what I imagine is that chaos would contribute to anxiety. Yes. Chaos would contribute to it. Sure yes. does for me. Yes, absolutely. So, so when you when you're in a situation for anyone watching and listening that has larger families, mm -hmm. kids close together, mm -hmm. um, busy schedules, mm -hmm. they may be a loving, safe home, mm -hmm. but the nature of the it's time to get out the door. We got oh, basketball. We got this. Life. Yeah. How would you help someone? that is in a situation where it feels like, because I'm one of these people, where it feels like the chaos mm -hmm. contributes to the stress and anxiety for every member of the family, and you're not sure how to stop the chaos. Mm -hmm. Just another small question. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I got some big ones today. Yes. Well, <laughs> you I can mean, tell I'm living this out, but right. I, I see how that affects them. I see they get anxious mm -hmm. with all the yelling and fighting and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we'll separate them. We've got some strategies, but our lives in this season of life just feels very loud. Yeah. And, and I want to help them not feel like they have to compete for, for position, not feel like they have to um, fight and scrap. And so I just, I'm curious how that, if, if you see chaotic schedules or lives or seasons and how that affects anxiety for everybody. I would say we need to slow it down. Yeah. I mean, I, I think 
kids are doing way too much anymore. Yeah. I mean, the three practices and getting, I mean, I have so many kids who say, I can't even get to my homework till 9 p.m. Yeah. And that's too much. It's crazy. And yeah, it really is. And so I would say, think about what you can kind of pull back and slow down from. But there is another psychologist named Dan Siegel who has something called a healthy mind platter that I love that talks about how every child needs downtime every day. And so, I mean, and he talks about all these things that kind of contribute to cognitive health. Yeah. And so I think we need need to figure out how to have pockets of time, at least where we're slowing down, where they have kind of a quiet time every day, right. that they go in their rooms and they play quietly. We need to make sure we're aware of bedtime and that they're getting adequate rest. And, and I think one of the other pieces of that that's really important is paying attention to what each kid needs, because mm -hmm. it may be that you're really extroverted and you have one child in a big family that's introverted, and that child's going to need more time in their room, more time with you individually. And, and, and I have parents who say, my child kind of tanks if they're not in enough activities, and other families who will say, my child is just in too much and it's making them more anxious. And so it really is about kind of reading and studying and being curious about your child yeah. and following what you can tell. And I would say for moms who are listening, for you, I yeah. mean, your gut is the greatest gift you'll ever have in your parenting. Yeah. And so really paying attention to and trusting that God is leading you there yeah. into what they each need. Yeah, that's really good. You know what I was thinking about even as you were talking, you know, last year when quarantine happened and everybody mm -hmm. went home and calendars were cleared, we all felt this uh, gift of just a free schedule. We're like, oh my yes. gosh, walks around the neighborhood. We don't yes. have to rush out the door at this time or that time. And, and at first it was awesome. And it was like, this is really beautiful. This is teaching me about what I want my schedule to look like. Mm -hmm. When life gets back to normal, I'm not gonna feel it so full. Right. We had all this perspective. I did. I know I talked to a yes. lot of moms that did. But I think that the pandemic, the quarantine, and its effects on our schedule mm -hmm. lasted so much longer than we expected or would ever wanted. Mm -hmm. That now, I would say what I'm sensing and even feeling in my life, the pendulum is swinging back mm -hmm. to fill it all in. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm just, I just want to go to a concert. I just get my kid. Oh my gosh, right. they're having summer camp. Yes, sign them up for all the camps because oh yes. my gosh, get them out. Yes. And it's almost like it's sending us back into that busyness before the pandemic, before we had that insight, before we had that perspective of, oh, I'm going to remember how mm -hmm. good it feels to come home and not rush to activities. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious to see how this affects our schedules, our routines, and our rhythms, you know what I mean? Because yes. we've been so hungry yes. for social interaction yes. for so long. Are you seeing, and I know we talked about social media, but especially in relation to the last year, how is that affecting anxiety in kids and in, and in families? Exactly what you said. I think in the beginning, I mean, it was so cool to be on Zoom with little girls in the beginning because they, they were the ones I'd been most worried about that had been so anxious in my office. And then we went to stay at home and those same little girls were hopping on my computer screen on Zoom and they'd have a stuffed animal under one arm and, you know, they'd be showing me their bedroom through their iPad, and those kids were so much less anxious because I think the pressure lifted and this chaos lifted and the schedule lifted, and they felt so filled up yeah. from time with parents. Yeah. And I would say it's coming back. Yeah because of exactly what you said. And so I think even as a family, that is such a beautiful conversation to have right now. Let's go back to last year at this time. What were some things you learned about yourself? What were some things you learned about our family? What are things you wanna hold on to and carry over into now? Because I did have so many kids talk about how much better that was. I remember one teenage girl who said, I, I didn't realize I was doing too much and I'm only gonna do one activity per season. And another who said, I never knew I liked to be alone. Wow. You know, I mean, the discoveries like that that right. we had to go back to, I think are really important. That's such a, that's such a good insight too, because um, 
in a weird way, I experienced something similar um, about a month ago. My husband actually got COVID, and so I, we quarantined from him. So I had all three kids by myself for 10 days. <laughs> um, that's right, 10. Wow. Um, just want to go on record. Yes. Um, and, and as difficult as that was for, for those days, there was something beautiful in it that when I would get the kids down— I was alone. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, um, you know, as an extrovert myself and being social and I love friends and I love time with people, I get my energy from people, I'd forgotten how much that I actually need that. And Mm -hmm. so I talked to my husband even afterwards. I was like, this is a weird thing. Don't feel like I didn't love, I didn't (laughs) miss you because I did. But I was like, I realized how I enjoyed an evening to watch a total girl movie that you would never want to watch totally. and eat girl food that has no yes. meat in it or whatever, yes. you know, or just something so cliche. Um, but these insights that if we never have it, we forget we need it. Mm. And and just like, you know, in your example of this girl, I didn't realize I needed alone mm. time or I didn't realize I only wanted to do one activity. One of the things that I think, you know, the quarantine kind of gave us perspective is— I felt, um, because I like to go, 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 mm-hmm. um, a lot of times with my kids, to do something with them is to take them somewhere and do an activity. We're going to go to the zoo. We're going to go to the science center. We're gonna, And just to realize that, like, you could do a scavenger hunt in your backyard and not go anywhere. You yes. know, that you can yes. get creative. You don't it's have financially to— Financially so much easier. Totally. Yes. You don't have to load up and go all the right. time. For for someone listening and watching right now, and they are um, they're going, yeah, I see that in my kids, I see that in myself. What are some things they can do? What are some things they can do to help their kids with stress, with worry, with anxiety, in addition to getting healthy themselves and mm-hmm. identifying those things in themselves for a child? And maybe mm-hmm. even give me some examples at different ages, because I know mm-hmm. four year olds super different than a fourteen year old. Right. But what do they do? You know, what are some of the things that you lay out in your book? So I'll tell you my first three things. Okay. So it's kind of like counseling, a month of counseling, Let's have it. three Let's minutes. Have it. But and I wrote these in this book because the the primary therapy technique or model we use for for anxiety is cognitive behavioral therapy. And the reality is I wrote those kind of to work people like me out of a job. Like you can do these things at home. You don't need somebody like me. If they don't work, then go see somebody like me. But I'll tell you my first three things. So the first is, here's a little science explanation. So for any of us, when we're feeling calm, you know, we have blood flowing all throughout our brain. When we get anxious, our blood vessels in our brain constrict and it shifts the blood away from the prefrontal cortex that helps us think rationally and manage our emotions. And it goes to the amygdala. Okay. That's the fight or flight region of our brain. So when I sit with parents and counseling her like, my daughter is a crazy person when she gets to this place. Yes, because the part of her brain that can reason— She literally is. Yes, yeah. it's not even getting blood. And That's so until we can calm our bodies back down, kids and grownups, until we can calm our bodies back down, we can't get back to a place where we can work ourselves out of it. So I have kids do deep breathing is the first thing I always do. With girls, I'll call it square breathing. With boys, we call it combat breathing because it sounds cooler. Okay. <laughs> and so I'll teach you how to do it. You okay. do it with me. Okay, so what you do is you put your hand on your leg. Okay. Ready. And you're going to draw a square on your leg. Okay. And with each line of the square, you breathe a different way, and you pause in the corner for three seconds. So, like, pause for three seconds. Pause for three seconds. Pause for three seconds. Don't you feel better already? I do. Like, it calms do. me this down. so great. I'm so 20 relaxed. seconds of deep breathing resets the amygdala. That's okay. all it takes okay. is 20 seconds. Okay. And so we start there, and then the kids have calmed down, but they're still stuck in this loop. Or we're, we're still stuck in this loop. Oh, my goodness, what's happening to my child right now? Oh, no, something's wrong, something's wrong. So we calm our bodies down, and then we do what are called grounding techniques. So if you have anxiety, you're not even in the present moment. You're either in the past or in the future. And so grounding kind of pulls you back to the ground. So... Anything sensory-related is grounding, which is why I like the drawing the square on the leg because the tactileness of that. 
I don't know if tactileness is a word, but we'll say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So five, four, three, two, one is my favorite. So if you're in the car driving your child to a birthday party and they've got some social anxiety and they're getting really worked up, then in that moment, you would say, tell me five things right now that you see. The trees outside, you know, whatever, five things. Tell me four things you hear. Okay. Tell me three things you feel. Tell me two things you smell. And tell me one thing you taste. And that loop that they're caught in, it requires enough focus that it pulls them out. Wow, that is a cool mind trick. I know, it's I a love cool mind that. trick. With yeah. the older kids, I'll have them do math. So okay. count backwards from 100 by sevens, which, you know, Just would be hard. Just the focus pulls you out of the, the right. crazy thinking loop. Exactly, okay. exactly. And then the third thing I do with kids that's probably, I mean, really, from a mindset standpoint, it's the most important. I have them name their worries because, you know, we all have a voice in our head mm -hmm. telling us, critical things about ourselves, yep, yep. telling us you can't do it. And so when they can give that worry a name, it reduces its power. Yes. So like, that's true for us too, yes, right? Like totally, that's so good. Totally. So in the little girl's book, I call it the worry monster. And then okay. I have them draw a picture of it. And then I have them, so they come up with their own name. Like I had one girl who named hers Bob. No idea why <laughs> she named her worry monster Bob, but she did. And with the older girls, I named it um, just the worry whisper, because okay. that's what it feels like. It's whispering these things in the back of our head. And so then what happens is when they can talk back to it, worry monster, I'm not listening to you. You yep. have no power over me. I'm stronger than you anyway. That helps so much. And because what happens is we can see it track over development and it shifts. Anxiety's like whack-a-mole. And so it often starts off developmentally with something bad's gonna happen to someone I love. And then it shifts to, I'm going to throw up, you know, and then they get stomach upset, yes. and then they really do think they're going to throw up. Sometimes they do. Then it shifts to performance in school. And so when she has or he has shifted to the next thing, and they come back to you as a parent and say, well, Mom, now I'm worried about this, then you can say, you know what? Sounds like Bob's back to me. Yep. Because the same tools that work, however worry manifests, work throughout. And wow. so you can say, tell me what worked last time. Wow. And then they can use those same tools. Wow, that's so helpful. It's so practical. And it's also something that I think for, for parents is so empowering because you don't have to feel like this is something out of your hands. That when you're in the car, on the way to school, before bed, yes. you can talk through these things. You Practice. can do the breathing. You can yes. do the five, four, three, two, one. I yes. love that. Sissy, I, you can tell, could talk to you all day about this. Well, this me is too. so, so helpful. It's it's so helpful for everyone listening, not just for the moms or dads that are listening that have kids of any age, but also just for ourselves. I mean, these are things that I know we all struggle with as well. And I know people want to know where they can get this book, Raising Worry-Free Girls, but also your new book. Um, so tell them where they can get that and connect with you. So really wherever books are sold. And we're, our website is RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. Okay. And then we also have, I have an Instagram account that I try to put out a lot about anxiety on, okay. Sissy Goff. And then I'm also under Raising Boys and Girls. So Perfect. any of those spots. This is so great. Thank you Thank for you. your it's wisdom. So fun to be this with is, you. This has been a huge help, and I know so many people are going to benefit from it. Thanks for being here. Yeah. All right, y'all, I would love to share with you a passage from Scripture that I know you're probably familiar with, but it's such a great reminder, especially with everything we're talking about today, about how we don't need to worry. This is from Matthew 6. This is 6, 25 through 34, so stick with me, but I love this. The title of the section is Do Not Worry. So here we go. Verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear? Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which are here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that the truth? I love this section of scripture because it explicitly tells us not only not to worry, but it reminds us that we have a choice in the matter. And I know we live in this culture where everybody has a right to feel their feelings. We've got to feel our feelings. We've got to be authentic. We've got to be genuine. We've got to be honest about, yes, yes. And at the same time, God's reminding us, you have a choice. Don't worry. You have control over your thoughts. You get to decide what you think about and what you don't, what you allow to enter into your mind, what you allow to stay in your mind, what you give your attention to, what you focus on, what you stew about. You have a choice in that matter. And it's not gonna be this flip a switch and you never worry again. And it's not gonna be as simple as a worrying thought enters your mind and all of a sudden you easily recognize it and immediately head it off to pass. It's not that simple, I know that. But you can train your mind not to worry. You can train yourself to stop thinking thoughts that are harming you and that are taking your focus off of God. Because I guarantee you, Those thoughts that are spiraling, those worst case scenarios, those doomsday thoughts that are coming into your mind, what if this happens and what about this and what about that and what if that happens and what if she doesn't like you and what if they're never gonna get into that school and what if they never get these grades and what if, that's not God. No, it's not. God doesn't talk to you like that. And guess what? God doesn't worry, ever. He's not up in heavens wringing his hands going, oh my gosh, I never saw this coming. I didn't know about the test this Friday. I didn't know they wanted to get in this school. I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. He's not, ever. He knows everything. He can do anything. He's never surprised and he's always on time. He's not worrying. So those thoughts you're getting are not from him. Those worrying thoughts, the doomsday scenarios, those are not from your heavenly father. They don't sound like him. They're not in line with his character. And the great news is, because you and I have a choice in the matter, when those thoughts enter our mind, or worse, when someone else puts those thoughts in our mind, like, have you thought about this? Aren't you worried about this? Thank you, generous person, just spreading worry everywhere you go. No, I hadn't thought about it, but now I have. Even in those scenarios, you can choose to cut them off before they get bad. Just like I stopped my son, Carter, I was saying, Carter, stop. You can stop your thoughts and say, that's not how God talks to me. My God is in control. Here's what my God says about this situation. My God knows everything. He can do anything. You can pray. You can believe the best. You can focus on what you're grateful for. 
You can control your thoughts. You can choose to follow this command, do not worry. It's a choice. I wanna give you some journal questions to think about as you process this for your, your own life. Number one, what do you tend to worry about the most? What do you worry about? What consumes your thoughts and keeps you up at night? What is that thing that every time you think about it, it just pulls you in this direction of your thoughts spiraling? What do you worry about the most? Number two, how does this passage from Scripture, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, how does it help you remember that you have a choice in the matter? That you are not a passive puppet, you're not a victim to your thoughts, you have control over your thoughts and you have a choice in whether you worry or not. How does this help you remember that? And lastly, what comfort do you find in the fact that God takes care of us? What are you reminded of in this passage of even how He takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field? If He takes care of them, how much more valuable are you? What comfort do you find from this passage to remember that God will take care of you? All right, I would love to pray for us as we wrap up. God, thank you that you do know everything. You can do anything. You are never surprised and you're always on time. Even when we feel our, we have a need to worry, even when we find ourselves worrying when we don't want to, you never worry. And as your children, you don't want us to either. God, give us peace. Give us a stronger faith. Remind us of who is in control. Remind us that you are a good God and you love us very much and we can trust you with the big things and the small things and everything in between in our lives that we do not need to worry. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that you are faithful and you always come through for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so much for joining me as always. And for more encouragement on building confidence in yourself and the God that created you, you can visit christywright.com. Mercy Me is coming to Pittsburgh, the Together Again tour with Mercy Me, Crowder, and special guest, Andrew Ripp, Thursday, October 5th. Bring your family and friends to the PPG Pain Serena in Pittsburgh for Mercy Me, Crowder, and Andrew Ripp live in concert. Three multiple award-winning artists on one stage for one night. Let your spirit soar, your heart sing, and your faith ignite. Mark your calendars for Thursday, October 5th. Get your tickets now at mercyme.org.